This is James 1, 12 to 15. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, when it has conceived gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, gives forth death. Good morning, church. Good, I'm on. For those of you who don't know me, I've never been on the flash drive, but I've got it right many times in the car. I don't know how different it is when you're actually on the phone and the pressure's on, but I feel like I can relate to sign in some ways. My name is Jane. I'm part of the leadership team here at Common Ground Church, and I feel very privileged to be able to have the opportunity to speak to you today. We are in week four in the book of James. And as you can see, they've given me a really easy passage to speak into. There's nothing like sin and desire and temptation to get your heart racing on a Sunday morning. Um, But in all honesty, I know this can be quite an intimidating passage, but I'm very excited for us to really dig into it today. There's something about getting this this text into our heads and into our hearts that's really important for us. The fact that temptation is real that we will face it, it happens to all of us, and with God's help, we can fight it. So the bottom line of today's message is this, God is good. We are to take responsibility for how we deal with temptation in our lives, and we need to fight it, knowing that Jesus fought for our salvation and our obedience. So let's orient ourselves in the book of James. For some of you, this might be your first sermon that you're hearing based on the book. So in week one, Ryan spoke about trials as an opportunity for great joy and a testing and training ground for our faith to be deeper and richer in Christ. Garth spoke about where we go in the midst of trials, that God is all-knowing, all-loving, and always available with the gift of wisdom ready to be imparted for those of us who ask and seek with a genuine and undivided faith. And then Bruce spoke beautifully last week into the truth that we are all equal at the foot of the cross. Whether wealthy or in poverty, our material worth does not define our standing in God's kingdom. And in the weeks to come, we are gonna be hearing about the goodness of God, the father of lights, the giver of good and perfect gifts, as well as our responsibility as mature Christians to not only listen to the word of God, but do what it says to prove our faith genuine. James is such a practical book. It has so many real life examples and calls to action. It's like he says to us, you say you're all in, well, show me. I'm actually gonna put this up a bit. Say, can you help me do this? I've done it many times, but while preaching, I feel like that's just slightly above my um, expertise. Thanks, right? Um, We were actually quite, oh, that's awesome, thank you. We were quite excited, so our daughter Rachel's in grade five, and for the first time, we got to be a part of one of her cross-country races. So because of COVID, we've never had one of these, all the schools coming together and everyone running, and so she's been in cross-country for a couple of years. She would call herself a runner, 
But on Friday, she got to prove it. She was in her first race, and there is nothing like the pride. My, my poor child, shame. She'll be so embarrassed. I'm even sharing the story. She was embarrassed because I was on the side going, go, Rachel, go! She's like, mom, no one else is doing that. But just that pride when you see your daughter running, and she was able to prove, I am a runner. I finished the race, mom. I did it with that cup of Powerade at the end there. And it reminded me of when I was in grade eight and I ran a race. So I started in cross country in grade eight. I was like, yeah, I could do this running thing. Everyone can run, surely. Um, I never really trained for it. I just thought running was something that you could do. I came last in the one and only race I ever entered into because I got there and started running and realized, oh, you actually have to train for this thing. You, you actually have to practice. It doesn't just come naturally. And I feel like that's what James is saying to us. You say you're a runner, run the race. Let's see, prove to us that if you call yourself a runner, you can indeed run. You say you love God and you seek to obey him. Let's see it. Let's put you in the race of life and see what happens when you come up against obstacles. So the passage of scripture today, James moves away from the start of his chapter where he speaks about outward enduring trials to our inward journey with temptation. We are going to go verse by verse, unpacking the information that he shares as he speaks about temptation specifically. Now, the teacher in me can't help but just pause here to make sure that we correctly understand the terms trials, tests, and temptations. The T words are quite confusing, and some translations will even use them interchangeably, which can be unhelpful when we're trying to figure out what James is saying. Trials are difficult, painful moments in your life. It can be part of living in this fallen world. Bad things are going to happen to you. There could be things that are done to you. It's just life happening. Things like the death of a loved one, a season of illness, or natural disasters. I think I have so many family members living in um, Durban, and the floods that they had a few weeks ago was a real trial. People lost their lives, their homes. There was property damage. One of my aunts said, oh, we didn't have electricity for 16 days. I was like, days? How do you do that? Roads were washed away. They couldn't get to work. So these trials are often beyond our control, but they are under God's sovereignty, and they can be used by God for our good. And it's good to note the specific trial of being undermined, attacked, or opposed for your faith is called persecution. Testing by God is when God uses the situations in your life, it can be negative, our trials, or our positive experiences to assess where we are in our faith and to grow to be more like Him. When Mike and I were trying for kids, it took quite a bit longer than we expected in the beginning. And God used the cycle of hope and desire and disappointment month by month to really work in me around where do I go, what do I rely on? Am I relying on myself and what I'm able to do? or on God and what only He can do. He really tested me and my belief in the goodness of God. It was a season of growing dependence and trust for me. So He allows these situations to do a work within you, not just around you, so that you can develop your understanding of God and His will in your life. When we read about trials and tests in the Bible, we are assured of a few things. Number one, we will experience them. We are to remain steadfast as we go through them, and we will be blessed with maturity and genuine faith as a result of our perseverance. Verse 12 speaks to this. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, 
which God has promised to those who love him. What a beautiful promise to hold on to for those of us in the middle of trial or suffering right now. God loves you. There is life promised to you. And James says you will be called blessed. Isn't this what we saw James encouraging us to do in verses two to four? Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for when that for we know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Temptation is different. This is when our own internal selfish wants or desires come from within us and entice us to go our own way. These are opposed to the will of God. And the Bible is clear on what we should do when temptation arises. We should flee. So there are significant differences between the trials spoken of at the start of James and this passage dealing with temptation. The source is different. Trials are external in nature and under God's will. Temptation arises from within and is at odds with God's will. Our response should be different. Uh, Trials are a cause to remain steadfast and to persevere, but temptation is a situation we should resist or flee. And the outcome for trials when successfully overcome is life, maturity, growth. But the outcome of temptation, if not resisted, is sin and finally death. The only thing they have in common is they should both send us to Jesus and pray. We can't do either of them without him. One other disclaimer about temptation before we dive into the verse itself. It's good to note that temptation can come in different forms. Sometimes it does arise out of trials. That refining fire, the refining fire analogy, as the metal heats up, the impurities are brought to the surface. So what are tough times that you find yourself in that bring out the worst in you? My most recent and relevant example in this season is load shedding. I mean, can I get an amen? Load shedding is the most frustrating thing. When the lights go off, it's like this monster just emerges from within me. I become grumpy, self-centered, self-righteous, angry. You know, if I worked at ISCOM, I never would have allowed load shedding to take place in the first place. Do you know, I paid for my electricity, so I should be able to use it whenever I want. It's my right to cook my family's supper whenever I want to cook it. Why must I wait for your load shedding schedule? You see, it touches on my pride. It touches on my comfort and my self-reliance, all of these idols that I've built up in my life. So the trial, load shedding, brings out my desire for control and comfort and I am tempted. Sometimes you'll find you have seasons of temptation when the same weakness seems to be brought up again and again. I think of when Mike and I were dating and that struggle to maintain sexual purity in our relationship. When I was single and after we got married, this temptation to cross physical boundaries was removed. But I remember it being a tough season of battling temptation for both of us. Sometimes you'll have a heightened awareness of your temptations just by God's grace. At the moment, God seems to be working on my need to be in control. So I'm finding myself very aware of when the control idol kind of rears its head in my life. And I'm going, whoa, I didn't notice that before. Just by God's grace, I'm becoming more and more aware of control as something that I struggle with. And other times, we are going to be unaware when temptation happens. You're sitting at home in front of your computer, getting some work done, and the next minute you're watching porn. Where did that come from? It just came out of nowhere. So temptation can come in different forms in our lives. And the truth is, trials, tests, and temptations can often feel blurry and actually seem interchangeable in our lives. 
And this is where the wisdom of God is such an encouragement to me when I try to understand what is happening in my life right now and how do I deal with it? James saying, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. I can ask God for his wisdom to better discern where temptation rears its head in my life. His wisdom allows me to reflect on what this temptation reveals about me and I'm encouraged with wisdom for how to fight it for his glory. So let's get into verse 13. James says to us, let no one say, when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. He's raising our understanding of who God is by reminding us that God cannot be tempted and he cannot tempt. Why not? Well, the Bible speaks into God's character profoundly. And there are a bunch of verses that I'm gonna be paraphrasing here. God is good. God is perfect. He is light. There is no darkness found within him. God is love. He is holy and set apart. Don't you see? Evil can hold no sway over him who is perfectly good. Sin holds no attraction to him because it is incompatible with his very holy nature. How can he tempt anyone as if he were conniving, trying to trick us, laying in wait to trip us up and undermine our faith? No. God's great love can purify and test us, but this is for our good, our growth, our sanctification. He does not tempt in order to trick us to sin, which leads to death. We need to acknowledge where we've made God the line judge in our lives. You know, the guy in the tennis match, and as the players are playing, he watches to see, and as soon as that ball goes just outside the line, he shouts, fault! That's not God. This verse is a great reminder for us to raise our perception of God higher. Do you truly believe and take to heart the goodness of God? his perfect ways, the fact that he has no hint of evil within him, only love. This is his character. And out of his character comes his compassion and love, his grace and his forgiveness towards us. So if God is all good, we cannot blame him for times when temptation reveals the hidden ugliness in our hearts. James actually even highlights, he says, let no one say, And later on, he speaks about each person being tempted. You see, we are all susceptible to temptation. It happens to everyone. We need to acknowledge it. And temptation comes from within. We cannot blame our circumstances, our trials, our husbands, our wives, ESCOM, anything else. Genesis chapter three is a great example in how this can play out in our lives. Adam and Eve living happily in the Garden of Eden and God gives them dominion over everything except the fruit from that tree. And now Eve looks at that tree and she desires it. She really wants it. And Satan tempts her by convincing her that her desire for its fruit is greater than God's command to leave the tree alone. So she succumbs to the temptation and she eats the fruit with Adam eating too. God comes to meet them as he usually does, but they treat God differently now that they've disobeyed him. They are ashamed They hide, they make excuses. And when God speaks directly to Adam about what he has done, Adam does what so many of us can relate to. He says, the woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit and I ate. 
blame your wife, dude. I think every husband since then has known that does not end well. Now, on the surface level, he looks like he's blaming the woman, but look closer. The woman you gave me, God. The woman you gave me. He is blaming God for his sin. If having the forbidden tree in the garden was a test for Adam and Eve, it was their own desire for godly wisdom apart from God, along with some prompting from Satan that tempted them. And when they took a bite from the fruit, they said yes to temptation and it became sin. And it's the same with us. We can't blame God for temptation we encounter. It is from within us. Now, James speaks about the devil in chapter four, but I love how he doesn't bring him too quickly in here. He really is driving home the point that the heart of temptation is desire within our hearts that is fallen and illicit and selfish. There's nothing scarier in the horror movie when the character's running around and they're taking calls in the house and they're like, who's phoning me? And then someone tells them, it's coming from inside the house. That's the one where you're like, they're gonna die. It is so scary to acknowledge that is within us, but it's true. It's inside of us. It comes from within. It's part of our human nature, our longing for something, whether or not God allows it. So when we are tempted and when we sin, let us not blame God as if He would willingly put us in a position for our selfish, ungodly, unholy desires to be fulfilled. We have to accept individual responsibility for our sin. 1 John 1 verse 8 says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. A sign of our growing maturity is when we can acknowledge that God is infinitely good, and we are way more depraved than we thought we were. Paul knows this, declaring himself to be a wretched man in Romans 7, because I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. No one lies to us more than ourselves. We are wired to justify our own selfish thoughts and actions, however opposed to God's will it is. So how do you think of temptation? Is it God's fault? Can you admit that you are worse than you imagined and then it comes from within? Or do you still hold to a sense that there's nothing wrong in me? It must be something out there. It's because of this. I'm a victim in all of this. Do you ignore temptation? Or can you acknowledge it? It's important for us to recognize that it's there. So if we are responsible for the temptation that rises within us, how does this sin cycle play out that James speaks to? He says we are tempted when we are lured and enticed by our own desires. And then he speaks of desire conceiving and giving birth to sin and sin when fully grown, leading to death. He's revealing the design of deception, the path it takes, the cycle that grows until it kills. Desire plus sin equals death is the formula. So let's look at each of those elements as they work together. Jane Wilkins describes the cycle as see it, want it, take it. It's like Eve in Genesis 3. She saw the tree, she desired the fruit of the tree, and she took the fruit and she ate it. Temptation is when you see it. When you really focus on it, you gaze on it, and you just start to want it. 
The words lure and entice are fishing terms, so this should be easy for those who fish to be able to understand. When you're fishing, so I've been told, I've caught one fish and on closer inspection it turned out to be a stick. I don't know how I got confused, but it was pulling like a fish. That's what I was told it would do. Um, you start with something that you put on the hook, some bait, because no fish is going to go up to a sharp object. And so you can use worms or mud prawns. Or you can use, these are literally called lures, these fun, colorful, feathery things. I look at them like, that looks so cute. No wonder a fish is swimming along, minding his own business, and he sees that out of the corner of his eye, and he goes, whoa, that's shiny. That looks good. That looks kind of yummy. I think I'm going to go closer. I want to try it. I want to taste it. I'm going to have it. He's drawn in and then bam, he's caught by the hook, dragged out of his home and onto your dinner plate. When you say yes to desire, James compares it to conceiving, which produces sin. And sin will grow and grow until it brings forth death. Sure. Feels like we went quite quickly from the colorful thing to dead, or at least that must be what it feels like for the fish that's now on your plate. So now the pregnancy analogy, which comes after the fishing analogy, can feel incomplete in some ways. I've got to be honest. I feel like God can intervene at any moment in our temptation and sin struggles. But a successful pregnancy and birth means that a baby is inevitable. And really, for many of us, a baby is a cause for celebration, but not the case in this sin cycle. But James does use the analogy. And I do think it gives imagery to the temptation journey that many of us give into. You know, in the beginning... It's an internal process. No one else knows. But there are thoughts and desires and inner dialogue that's going on within you, much like a baby developing unseen in the womb. If you've allowed temptation to grow, it starts to show. Like this is the point when you see a woman and you're like, is she, isn't she? I can't, you can never ask. That's one thing we know, never ask someone. Oh, are you pregnant? But it's that point where you're going, mm, I think I see something there. I wonder if she's pregnant. It's when people start to sense something's going on in your conversation or your attitudes, but you haven't let them in on the internal journey of temptation that you're going through, so they don't know exactly what's going on, but they can kind of sense it. And then there comes a point where we decide to act on our temptation, and then it's suddenly quite obvious what's going on. We do things out of character. We reveal a side of ourselves that's not in line with God's will. There are consequences for ourselves and for the people around us. The baby is out. There's no more hiding it. Birth was inevitable. James goes on to say that when sin is fully grown, it brings forth death. There's nothing worse than that. Let's not be fooled into thinking that sin can be easily dealt with. It's manageable, it's controllable, I can handle it. When you act on desire and allow sin to enter in, it doesn't magically remove the desire from your life. You've heard people say, oh, I just have to get it out of my system, you know? Sin doesn't work that way. It isn't once and no more. The Bible says it will grow stronger and stronger. It will take control of you. It will want more and more of you until you end up doing things you never thought you would do. Sin has natural consequences in this world that many of us live with. Broken relationships, loss, addiction, legal ramifications. And the end of the line some sins result in physical death. And consistent, unconfessed, unrepented, heart-hardening sin in your life can lead to spiritual death. Turning your back on God, believing He won't do anything to help, and not wanting His redemption anyway. 
before we continue, I just had a sense when I was preparing that some of you might be feeling in your heart, actually, Jane, I'm too far down this thin road. I don't think that I can actually turn around. Some of you are feeling like it's actually too late for me. If only you knew what I've done, you would know that this doesn't apply to me. And can I just remind you of this truth? The beauty is that while we were still sinners, stuck on the road to death, Christ died for us. He knows you intimately. He loves you fully. And he has demonstrated that as love through Jesus' sacrifice. He is full of compassion and grace to those who say, I've had enough. God, save me. God, rescue me. God, forgive me. He is faithful to do it. You see, sin is serious. 1 Peter 5 verse 8 says, The enemy prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. God, when speaking to Cain, tells of sin crouching at the door, desiring to have him. And Jesus says, rather cut off your hand than allow it to cause you to sin. Some pretty serious words in the Bible. And there's no such thing as a little sin. We can't start the comparison journey when it comes to sin. You know, oh, what they did, whoa, that was bad. Like it was ugly. Like they were destructive. They hope my sin doesn't do, like I don't hurt anyone with what I do. It's just between me and God. It's not like that. At no point does God differentiate between good sin and bad sin or little sin and big sin or trivial sin and serious sin. It's all bad. And yet so often we minimize temptation and sin in our lives as something that we can handle. It's not going to hurt anyone. I think one of the reasons why sin is so hard to fight is because it feels so good. Can we admit that? Quite often we love our sins too much to let them go. They bring us happiness in the moment like that fluffy, colorful lure. But we don't see the hook. We don't see where it's headed and James is reminding us in this passage, look for the hook. Sin will only end up leading you one way and it will be death. This reminds me of a story about a man living in Manhattan who bought a baby tiger cub illegally and he raised it as his best friend in a high rise apartment block. It's true, it's a true story, you see? I actually have proof. He started off saying that he would hand feed it its milk and they would lie together watching movies. He called it his best friend until it was a full-grown Bengal tiger needing to eat nine kilograms of chicken every morning that he had to go buy from a grocery store. Can you imagine that trip? <laughs> One day he was rushed to the ER with leg wounds consistent of a predator attack. And when the medics asked, what's going on here? They were like, oh, he said it was a pit bull attack. Medics are not stupid. So they knew that couldn't be true. And they went to investigate his apartment and found the tiger there. This man, when interviewed, said, consciously, I knew I had a tiger, but the physical interaction and bonding, it was so natural until it tried to eat him. So I had a few questions after hearing this story. Firstly, I was like, what did you think would happen? What did you think was going to happen? And I know we can all be a bit self-righteous in the moment saying like, oh, come on, dude. If you're going to bring a tiger cub home, it's going to grow into a tiger. And yet how many of us are living with sin in our house right now that we cover up and excuse for, 
It controls our desires and seems to hold a disproportionate sway on our emotions and actions. The story isn't so far-fetched when you do consider that the tiger was really cute and fluffy when it started off and it was really small. It wasn't dangerous at all. So what tiger cub are you currently raising in your house? It's going to grow into a tiger. The second question that I thought about was like, when you realize the whole raising a tiger thing's probably not a good idea, wisdom kind of takes over, what's the best time to get rid of it? We can all agree it's not the moment when a policeman has to rappel down the side of an apartment building to shoot tranquilizer darts through the window. He shouldn't have let the cub in the house in the first place. Too many of us, myself included, have grown passive in our battle against the flesh, assuming a ceasefire, because that doesn't feel like we're in a war and sitting back when we should be prepared to fight. Every single one of us is in the fight. Melissa Krieger says we are still at war. Our flesh battles with our spirit to walk in obedience to Jesus. This reality is true for both older Christians and younger Christians. We are in the fight together. So what does success in resisting temptation look like? Well, we need a battle plan. There's no point saying, oh, I'm really struggling in this area and then having no idea about how we're gonna go about overcoming it. So here are some practical suggestions that I found helpful in my own battles. Firstly, stay alert. This speaks to identifying temptation early because it's easier to overcome at the start of the, uh, the cycle. Don't buy the tiger cup. A desire is easier to go against rather than trying to undo a sinful action. So when you feel the pull of your own desires, take this moment and go to God and say, God, is this of you or is this of me? Is there anything in this that's unholy or selfish? Don't wait until after you've seen, after you've wanted and after you've taken to then let God in. So what does have a disproportionate effect on your feelings? What are you allowing to have control over your thoughts? I'm gonna be honest, it took me a few load shedding tantrums before I asked what is going on here? It can't be that when the lights go off, I just get grumpy, there's something else under the surface. Wisdom is to follow the path in your mind and see where it leads before you take one next step. And when you identify these temptation patterns, bring in trusted friends so they can be aware and walk alongside you. Life group, a group of three, a prayer group, an accountability partner, reveal to others what you are fighting. It's a huge step towards overcoming because you get to practice a lot of what the Bible calls us to do in community, confessing sin to one another, lifting up one another in prayer, bearing one another's burdens. 1 John 1 verse seven says, if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. So be watching for temptation in your life and share what you see with your community. The next piece of advice I have is to flee. Joseph did it with Potiphar's wife. Paul calls us to do it when faced with sexual immorality. The Bible is clear that running away from sin can be a helpful response. Remove yourself from an area that causes temptation within you. Struggle with drinking? Don't go to that pub. Struggle with physical boundaries with your girlfriend? Don't go for the weekend away alone. 
for me and my struggle with self-control, it means when I need to buy milk and bread, I avoid the pick and pay at Kenilworth Centre because it's got a really nice clothing section. So I get the milk and then I go and check out the clothing. Is there anything for sale? And then I get the bread and then I go. I am putting myself in a place where I am tempted by the sale items. I can't ignore the red. They do that on purpose. I should have rather gone to Rosmead Pick and Pay, which is closer to my house and doesn't have scarves for sale. <laughs> this, this was a gift. I didn't buy this, but I'm just saying. So seriously, if you are aware of situations that bring out selfish desires within you and unnecessarily set you up to sin, avoid them. It's not the cowardly response. If the fish knew what was coming up that river, he would have swum the other way. Thirdly, God calls us to stand firm. Do not waver in the face of temptation. 1 Peter 5 verse 9 says, we are to stand firm against the devil and be strong in our faith. Ephesians 6 tells us to be strong in the Lord, standing firm against all the strategies of the devil. I don't know about you, but when I'm going through a season where temptation just seems rife, my bend is to avoid God. I back away from reading my Bible, I struggle to pray and worship. I somehow convince myself, it's fine, God, I'm just going to focus on this battle and do it alone. And when I'm done, then I'll come back to you. But standing firm means remaining in my faith, not allowing it to slip, but remaining constant with God despite the battle I face. So what could this look like for you? For me, it's often just putting on more worship music in the car, just hearing it as I'm driving, asking friends to pray for me with something that I'm struggling with and prioritizing my morning times with God. And the last bit of advice is to resist. James 4 verse 7 says, to submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Resist means we need to go against what the devil says when he uses our selfish desires against us. And our greatest ally in teaching us how to do this is Jesus. In Matthew 4, we read about Jesus being sent to the wilderness for 40 days and nights. This is a testing moment for Jesus as he is tempted by Satan who preys on the very real trial he is going through, extreme hunger and thirst. Satan offers food, fame, and renown. And Jesus counters every deceptive remark by quoting scripture and correctly acknowledging that God is perfect and the only one worthy of worship. He does not give in to his desire for food and the devil's temptation to usurp God's will by doing things his own way. So what Bible verses and truths about God do you have in your arsenal so that when desires arise and Satan causes doubt to creep into your mind, you're able to fight back with the true promises of God and true declarations of his character? Sin must be fought. It cannot be ignored. We need to stand against our temptations when they come, not blaming God when they appear, but using our knowledge of God as a shield to protect us and as an arrow to fight back. Douglas Moo says, Christian maturity is not indicated by the infrequency of temptation, but by the infrequency of succumbing to temptation. Now, I'm not going to pretend that this is like a very mock advert. If you just follow my four steps, temptation will be done in your life. There are no testimonials to that effect, guys. In fact, I think we can all agree temptation will be a lifelong battle for all of us. 
And although these guidelines can be helpful for putting plans into place as we resist, we must acknowledge that we are weak. We cannot do this on our own. But our God, he is good. He is all sufficient and he is someone that we can rely on fully. His grace covers us. His perseverance keeps us going and his power is made perfect in our weakness. I'm reminded of where we started today. God is good and he loves us and he longs to see his forgiveness and his will coming alive in our lives. It is his pleasure to see us walking in obedience with his ways and finding renewal and maturity in our faith. We worship a redeeming God. And we can see this work of redemption as twofold. Firstly, we are redeemed once and for all by Christ's sacrifice on the cross. Ephesians 1 verse 7 says, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. Our salvation is secure. But secondly, we are to continue the work of redemption in our day-to-day lives as we continuously say, God, not my will, but yours be done in my thoughts, my words, and my actions. This is the glory of the cross. Through Jesus' sacrifice and out of our love and devotion to Him, we can seek a life of obedience, love, and self-control for His glory and as worship to Him. For some of us, the lure of temptation has been so strong and we can actually feel quite helpless and hopeless in the face of it. The beauty of God's redemption is that no matter how far down the track you are, God can turn you around through repentance. He can deliver you from the grave and He can put you on the road that leads to life. God is faithful even in our unfaithfulness. He is true to his promises. Some of us see God as that distant figure. He's displeased with our choices removed from our struggles. But the cross proves that God comes closer than any other, demonstrating his love that while we are caught in the snare of sin, he dies for us. Nothing can separate us from that God. Won't you stand? I want to read a passage of scripture over us and I'm going to pray for all of us. And the scripture that I'm going to be reading is Hebrews 4, verse 14 to 16. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are and yet is without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Let us pray. God, thank you for the book of James and just what a helpful wisdom and encouragement it's been to each of us in the last few weeks. And also today, as you have reminded us about that design of deception, sin that takes hold of our lives. Thank you, Jesus, that you are our high priest and you intercede on our behalf. 
You sympathize with us. You are not cold to what we go through, but you love us. God, we want to draw near to you with confidence, asking for your mercy as we confess that we are weak in our battle against sin and temptation. God, we need your grace in our times of need. Help us to take seriously the effects of our sin and become more active in resisting the devil, standing firm in our faith. We want to pursue obedience, God, not as mere duty, but as an expression of our deep love for you, out of the deep love that you have shown us. Yeah, Holy Spirit, I just sense that there are some who have been caught and today is the day where they draw a line in the sand and they say enough is enough. I'm not saying yes to this anymore. God, won't you strengthen them? Won't you save them? Won't you deliver them? You are the God of deliverance. There are some who are in the middle of the battle and God, they are tired. They are working so hard to lay down their lives for you and it's not easy. God, won't you encourage them? Won't you strengthen them? And God, there are those that have complicated feelings towards you. Resentment to you as they're living out the consequences of their sins. Frustration that they're not seeing victory in certain areas, God. I pray that they can cry out to you in all honesty, sharing all that they're going through, knowing that you accept our feelings. God, I pray you'll minister to them and provide revelation as to what you're doing in these areas.